This is They Create Worlds, episode 43, Personal Gaming Histories. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. In this episode, we will reminisce. We will delve back into the darkness. Our mind. Our video game. Our history. Other people's history. That Atari over there and why it's on top of my television. <laughs> yes, not not that our listeners can, can see that, but it it's there. Yeah, maybe. In a long distant future, when people see us in their special hollow disc thing and see the pack. Does that mean I have to start wearing pants while we do these? Wait, you're not wearing pants. <laughs> oh, God! <laughs> Disclaimer Alex actually is wearing pants. That's right. We thought it would be fun to, well, fun for us at least. Might be boring for all of you. I don't know, but fun for us to. Just kind of go back into our own personal video game histories, kind of talk about how we got involved in these things, what some of our favorites were, and mix in a little history with that. Just a a way to stir up some nostalgia, uh, hopefully amongst all you listeners out there, as well as the two of us personally. And This is how we essentially came up with the idea to do They Create Worlds, is us just reminiscing. That's right. Well, let's, let's reminisce a bit. So, Jeff. Do you remember the first video game you ever played? Pretty sure I do. Tell the good people. Well, dear listeners, back when I was young, small, innocent, and didn't know any better. You were never innocent. They don't know that. (laughs) The first time I remember playing a video game is actually one of my cousin's houses when we went back east for New Year's. About what year would this be, give or take? This is not too long after the Nintendo came out. So I want to say 85, 86, maybe 87. They had this little mudroom, almost. I always thought of it as a mudroom, but more like a giant closet with no egress into the outside world. What self-respecting video game player wants to go out into the nice, big, scary world? That's right. In this Nice, happy little room where a bunch of pillows, a television on the floor, and a Nintendo Entertainment System. And I had cousins who were barely playing said Nintendo Entertainment System, namely Mario Brothers and Zelda. Super Mario Brothers, I assume. Yes. Because, of course, there is, there's the Mario Brothers game, and then there's the Super Mario Brothers game. This would be Super Mario Brothers. And it's probably more 87 now that I think about it because it had the Super Mario Brothers and Duck Hunt combination game right? cartridge. Yeah. I know this is because that Nintendo, that Nintendo I learned and remember as being my first game, I actually do own. My cousin later on in life decided he didn't want video game stuff anymore, knew how much I adored it, and actually when I was living in Germany, mailed me 
this giant box with his entire collection, the Nintendo, two controllers, the Zapper, the gray Zapper. We don't deal with that orange Zapper in my house. <laughs> oh, yeah, this is a very early system then if, it, if they had the gray Zapper. Yep. And more video games than you can shake a leg at. But no Rob. No robot. No Rob. It was <laughs> post-Rob before Orange. Right. Because, of course, it's, this is something that uh, our listeners that are younger may not realize, but there was a period of time when most toy guns looked incredibly realistic, and they didn't have those little orange, what, what, would, what would we call those? Those little orange stoppers on the barrel to make them obviously fake and didn't have all of these bizarre colors to make them look fake. A lot of these guns looked real. Now, I mean, no one would really mistake a zapper for a real gun if they really looked at it because it still looked like some kind of futuristic toy pistol thing. But but the fact of the matter is, is that Gray still made it look too real, especially if you're making some kind of split-second judgment. Especially if you're making a split-second judgment and a police officer can't be expected under a reasonable circumstances. That looks like a gun. It's gray like a gun. I need to react to that. And if there's no other indication, yeah, maybe hindsight, you can look, oh, yeah, that was a zapper, but right. you can't risk it. So the very early Nintendo Entertainment Systems had that gray zapper, which kind of matched the color scheme of the rest of the system with the gray box and the gray robot and everything else. And then probably around 87, I want to say, but I don't know exactly when. They changed to the bright orange zapper that I think more people are probably familiar with because, of course, they sold more units with the with the orange zapper than with the gray zapper. So, yeah, you're talking really old school uh, in Nintendo Entertainment System terms if you had a gray zapper system. Yep. That Nintendo has served me well to this day. I still use it. There was a time I thought it was broken, has given up the ghost, mostly because of our Famous 72-pin connector. Ah, uh, yes. I ended up for a while, my sister got me a top-loader NES, and that's actually in the studio with us now, off there with the television. Right, and this was a budget version. After the NES had already run its course and the Super Nintendo was out, they decided to milk a few more dollars from the whole thing by releasing a stripped-down, cheaper version of the system that was top-loading and a little more toy-like and, and a little smaller. It had nice rounded edges on its controller, so it didn't cut your hands. Yeah, it would have been great, except for the fact that they got rid of some of the video output options. Yeah, we do not like <laughs> having the loss of component. Yeah, that was... Or composite. Yeah, composite. That, that that was a shame. If they had left the composite in, in some ways, that would have been a superior system because of the rounded controllers and the top loading, etc. But There's actually hacks that people have done because the chip for the video output on the top loading Nintendo, and I was actually playing around in my head of actually doing this until I fixed the old Nintendo. The connection's still there hmm. to have that good video output on it, that composite output, and you can bypass the RF output, giving you superior video quality. And there's actually guides online and videos and how-tos and I think even a few retro kits to do this, but it is complicated. It is time-consuming. And yeah. 
Because, of course, they didn't change the board, but just by getting rid of those connectors, they could cut the cost of the system even more. And they wanted this version of the NES to be as cheap as they possibly could because it was past its prime at this point. And they were just trying to milk a few more bucks out of it before completely discontinuing. Yeah. This old Nintendo, the one I learned video games on, I did manage to fix it. I uh, took the 72-pin connector out, rebent all the pins on it in order to make them have a better, tighter hold on the cartridge. I spent a long time cleaning each pin to make sure all the corrosion was removed from it. And then once I got it back in, it didn't work. (laughs) Then I discovered through some more research that it's actually two adjustment screws on the Nintendo that adjust how far down the cartridge is allowed to go. And there's this weird little point. If you ever play with an old Nintendo and you push it down and then it goes back up and then it locks, you may have noticed that there's a little bit of play in there. Right. What those two screws do is they set what that play is. And that play dictates how much of when the cartridge is in there, how much of it is pushing against those pins. So... The trick is, is tightening those screws down just enough so you have just enough play to get the cartridge in there, (laughs) but not enough that it wiggles much. That way you have really good superior connection to it. Mm -hmm. It also helps if your cartridge is clean. So what I have going on downstairs in the basement, whenever I need to play one of these old games, or more or less when my nephews come over and want to play one of those games. Oh, you play them sometimes too. Don't just throw this all off on the kids. Not as often as I want to. That's true. Plus, you have that NES Classic thing that nobody else has and can play sometimes, too. Yeah, that's easier to play. Mm-hmm. I have to clean it with alcohol, but once it's cleaned with alcohol and it's freshly cleaned, it works near flawlessly. Over Christmas, I got a copy of Jackal. Yep. After cleaning that up, it pretty much flawlessly on the Nintendo, and Alex and I actually played a few rounds of it. Yep, we sure did. We talked about this, I think, a little bit in our Nintendo episode, but the sad thing is is that it didn't have to be that way, because, of course, the original Famicom was a top loader, and it did just fine. But when they came to the United States with it, because the market was dead, they didn't want anything that reminded people of a video game at all, because they figured that toy buyers would not have anything to do with it. So they deliberately designed the system to feel like a VCR because VCRs were the big, hot piece of consumer electronic technology at the time. And how do you load a VCR? In the front. You stick the tape in the front. So they came up with this bright idea that we'll make it VCR-like and have it be front-loading instead of top-loading. And that may have been great to sell it to toy buyers, but it was terrible for the connection of the cartridges. And that's why... You would have so many times where you would put that cartridge in and then you would either get some gibberish on the screen or you would just get a gray screen kind of flashing at you is because it was very hard oftentimes to get a solid connection between that 72-pin connector in your NES and that cartridge. And, of course, the solution to that is to blow on it, right? No. No, but everybody did. And I I really wonder how that became universal. I mean, because obviously this is a time before the internet. This is a time before YouTube. This is a time before people are communicating. 
But everybody did it. Everywhere. Blew on the cartridges. Maybe it had something to do with the media that came before it. You had other tapes, other cartridges. I'm not sure if blowing on cartridges was a thing with the Atari or if blowing cartridges had something to do with cassette tape. Yeah, well, I mean, it never was with the Atari because, of course, the Atari is a top-loading system. You don't it have is. that problem. You had the problem because it was hard to get a solid connection when you're front-loading instead of top-loading. Right. But as to what actually caused the myth of blowing or going <sighs> on the cartridge or I mean, I think the magic had, touch. Yeah, I think it had to do with people assuming that it was a dust problem. Mm-hmm. that dust was getting into that little groove and interfering with the connection. And so you would blow on it to get the dust out. And, and I mean, that wasn't the problem. I mean, maybe some dust got in there sometimes, but it was a connection problem, not a buildup problem. I mean, obviously, if you have an old cartridge that's gotten corroded, then you may have to clean it with some alcohol to get it to work again. But with a contemporary NES cartridge that you bought at the time that was still brand new, it wasn't a dust problem. It was... It was just that 72-pin connector being so off. Yeah, it was a nightmare, but we persevered. That's right. But yeah, so pretty much my first real experience with video games is the Nintendo. What about yours, Alex? I'm almost positive. It's hard to remember way back, but I'm almost positive that the first game that I ever played was an Apple II conversion of the Sega arcade game, Buck Rogers. We lived in Korea, South Korea, when I was very young. And when we were in South Korea, we got our first computer, which was totally an Apple II computer, I completely promise. All totally legitimate and from the Apple Computer Company. Of Korea. No, a real Apple II from California. Yeah, we we got a computer that was an Apple II. Cl- it was an Asian Apple II clone, and we got it with a bundle of software. One of the things that came with it was the game, the Buck Rogers game that Sega put out. It was a forward-scrolling shooter where it shot automatically. The shooting was automatic. You just had to maneuver and and try to to shoot things. So that is most likely the very first video game of any kind I ever played was on that. Apple II, that conversion. This would have been probably in 1984 or 1985, uh, somewhere in there. I wish I could remember the first time I played a Nintendo Entertainment System. I cannot. I don't know where it was. I don't know when it was. I remember the first time I played The Legend of Zelda. I was at a babysitter's house. At that time, you know, I, I'd seen games before that. I mean, I was familiar with the concept of levels and all of that. And I remember, I remember very specifically being very confused, being dropped into that one spot and, you know, just having this, this multi-direction. I got the sword. I mean, I figured out there's a cave. I'll go into that. But I had a sword and then I, I went to the north screen. I mean, I, I still remember this. So it had a big impact on me, I guess. And I killed most of the Octoroks up there. And then one of the Octoroks damaged me, didn't kill me. And I kind of left the screen and that was kind of it. And I remember. You know, asking the babysitter, the kid, uh, the babysitter's kid later, being like, you know, I went up to this, I went up, up to this one screen and, and killed all these things except for this one. And uh, what level was that? Oh, I specifically asked what level was that? Because it's like this concept of a nonlinear game like that where you could explore everywhere was just so alien to me. So 
I remember that, but I don't remember my very first NES. I do know that there was a period of time where we all got one over the course of like a year. Me and my friends all got one. This is probably 88 or 89 when I got mine. We all were able to save up the money or beg the parents or whatever to buy an NES, but none of us had any money to get any additional games. Played a lot of Super Mario Brothers and not much else mm -hmm. during that time period. When you played Duck Hunt a little, but I mean, really, Duck Hunt. Do, 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 do. Once you figure out, you just aim it at the light bulb. Well, yeah, if you want to be a cheater like that. Early light gun technology, <laughs> not always the most reliable. Of course, now you couldn't even play Duck Hunt on your modern television because those light guns don't work on LCD screens. <laughs> Or I still LED have the screens. light bulb. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you can still shoot at the light bulb, I guess. <laughs> yeah, those those were some of my first experiences with video games, and and your first computer. Yeah, I mean, I never really played computer games as much. We had that Apple II. Really? Why are you looking at me like that? It's an Apple II. We upgraded from that to a PC, a two eighty six PC. I think it was a two eighty six, not a three eighty six. This was in the mid-80s, and there just weren't a lot of PC games in the mid-80s, and we didn't have very many. Played a lot of hardball, uh, the baseball game, but that was about it. And then we didn't upgrade again until, like, the mid-90s. The next time we upgraded was a Pentium. So we went straight from a 286 to a Pentium. That's quite the jump. So, I, you know, I never had a Commodore 64. I almost completely missed out on the Commodore 64 era. I occasionally played a game or two. I remember playing World Games on a babysitter's Commodore 64 once. But I basically missed out on the 64 and, and all of that scene and the early PC stuff because we had a, a cruddy PC. So I was largely uh, an NES player with, with the occasional foray out to the arcades. Now, you had a Commodore 64, right? Still do, I think. Um, I forget if I do or not. I did lend it to a friend. I'm not sure if it ever came back to me. I know the disk drive's over there in the closet. I do have a Commodore 64, or should. Yes. You have legal ownership of one, if not possession. Right. That is pretty much my first computer, the Commodore 64. Played a whole bunch of games on it, everything from Zaxxon, Captive, Necromancer. I adored Necromancer. The music from that, to this day, still sends chills down my spine. Well, and of course, your Commodore 64 had the SID chip in it, which was just leaps and bounds ahead of what any other computer or video game system could do at that time in terms of music. Oh, yeah. It was a very pretty, beautiful thing. I remember when I had the Commodore actually set up in the game room at my parents' place, and I'd be using, doing something else, and I'd just do things like play the title screen of Necromancer and just throw it there on the screen and just listen to that while I was doing something else because mm -hmm. it was fun. Another fun one I liked playing a lot was Spy Hunter. Mm -hmm. That one's always just fun because you just had a little car and you're shooting everything and yay. <laughs> I actually have over there on the right, and I think you can see that, Alex, there's a little box of old floppies. These are the big five and a half inch floppies. Mm -hmm. Those are the original Commodore floppies. None of them probably work anymore, but I keep them purely for nostalgia and sentimental value. And one or two of them are even like legitimately purchased games. One or two of them. I seem to remember there are a lot of them over there that uh, that don't look very official. 
No. <laughs> no clue how we got those games. I, I'm just a little kid. I just know load one comma something. It, it's okay, Jeff. The statute of limitations has run out on that stuff. You're, you're safe either way. <laughs> we won't talk about anything we may or may not have acquired in recent years, but it's, it's okay to talk about the 1980s. Oh, good. <laughs> but that was pretty much my first computer, the Commodore 64. Lots of fun. The old monitor for the Commodore 64, still used for many, 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 many years. It was what I actually had the Nintendo hooked up to when I was in Germany with the Commodore 64 monitor hmm. because it had those RCA composite hookups on it and it worked perfectly well and fine. Even though we never really, once we were in Germany, really played the Commodore that much, it was a great thing for Nintendo to hook up to. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The Commodore 64 is where I played Archon, hmm. yes. which is that chess game with combat when the light side and the dark side meet on the field and whether or not the tile below you is light or dark determines whether or not you are more powerful or not. Right. We talked about that one a little bit in our early years of EA episode because, of course, in its Atari 800 form, this was one of the first six games that Electronic Arts released in 1983 and was one of just two or three of those games that actually sold very well. It's definitely a classic created by John Freeman, and Anne Westfall. It is amazing that they haven't remade that thing into something modern. No kidding. Still really good. It's a great concept and a lot of fun. I played a lot of hours of that game with my father back and forth. He had on the Commodore a full-blown joystick you could play around with. It was fun and enjoyable. The Commodore also had non-game things on it. There was this light pen drawing on the screen game hmm. or program. I only remember playing it a few times or running it a few times. Do a little house, build in a thing. It's a little art program. You could just draw and fill in simple things and better than the turtle on the Apple II. Oh, geez. Yes, I remember the turtle. Uh, Jeff and I, we, we go way back. We went to much of elementary school and all of junior high school together. And uh, in our junior high school, well, it was a K through eight, but when we were in junior high, they had computer classes. And this was, at this point, we're talking the early 90s. Even in the early 90s, all of the school had until like our seventh grade year were old Apple IIe computers, which was not just us. Apple really did a good job of cornering the school market, the education market in the 1980s. And so a lot of schools continued to use Apple products like the Apple IIe even long after they were obsolete. So even though no one in their right mind was still using an Apple IIe in, in 1993, we still were, and we were being taught how to use computers using an Apple IIe, which is uh, patently ridiculous. But we had to use the, the turtle drawing program as one of our units in our computer class at, at that time. I don't know if you were exposed to it outside of that, but that's where I remember the turtle from. Yeah, that's pretty much what I'm <laughs> thinking of. The turtle and their poor representation of programming where you may make a mistake. Therefore, you should make it so that your commands are every 10 lines so that you have enough space in between in case you need to modify something. My mind is like, 
why it doesn't have carriage returns where it goes down. <laughs> well, and it was such a primitive program that it didn't, the backspace key didn't even work. You had to use the delete key, even though the Apple IIe had a backspace key. Earlier versions didn't have that backspace, and this program was so old that if you tried to use backspace, it got very confused. <laughs> this is a very primitive program by 1993 standards. Think of this time at home, I'm not playing the Commodore, I got a 486, maybe even a first-gen Pentium. So I'm looking at this and going, eh? Yeah, that was, that was not so useful, but... Like I said, I mean, we went to a pretty good school. It, weren't, it wasn't that we were in a poor neighborhood that couldn't afford anything any better. It's just Apple had done such a good job of indoctrinating the schools into using Apple products that it was a long time before a lot of schools got away from that, even after a product like the Apple IIe was obsolete. Then we did finally get some Pentiums then, like when we were in seventh grade, when they built a new computer lab. Windows 98. <laughs> No, no, this is before Windows 98. This is These were Windows 3.1 machines. No, they were 95, 98. Well, they would have been 95. They weren't 98. Hmm. We graduated from junior high school in 1996. Hmm. We, we can do 95. that math. Fine. <laughs> I try to forget the fact that there is Windows 95 because to this day there is a computer at my work where I have to actually support a Windows 95 system. And I have to dredge up from my dark memories how to make a windows 95 system work because we need this one <laughs> windows 95 system to operate this other machine that is too expensive to replace yeah but we'll try to stay away from talking about this is supposed to be a light-hearted episode <laughs> jeff light-hearted i had to think of 95 i don't want to make you cry on a light-hearted episode that would just be cruel and that's not really what the listeners are here for. Well, maybe they are. I'm, they may all hate us. They may wish that, that we were crying all the time, but I'm, I'm hoping not. We can only know. <laughs> right. So, yeah, Apple II. I mean, they had a lot of exposure to Apple IIs in the school. Um, the school that I went to, uh, we moved around a lot. My dad was a DOD employee, not uniform service, but a DOD employee. So we moved around a lot in my early days. The school that I went to in Hawaii, had Apple IIs when Apple IIs were still kind of new. Uh, I remember fiddling around with those some. I think Quick was the game that was on there. It's an edu well, it's not an educational game, but I mean, it's meant, it's a kind of puzzle game for younger individuals. You can't die in it. You go around trying to avoid these worms and collect these pieces of things by manipulating switches to open doors and if the worm catches you, it eats you, but then you go through this little platforming or something, little routine to get back out of the worm. I mean, you don't die because it's meant for young kids, but that's one I remember playing a lot in school. You know, it's, it's funny, at that time, if we had the Oregon Trail, we weren't playing it. Now, I very much remember playing the Oregon Trail in junior high on mm -hmm. the Apple IIe's. I think for a lot of people that weren't interested in video games or weren't interested in computer games, Oregon Trail is the game that nonetheless everybody played. Oh, yeah, definitely. The big push when we were in school was get past the assignment, always sit at the computer that had Oregon Trail on it. That's right. Otherwise, you are stuck with Lemonade Stand. Yeah, and I mean, it's just a simpler game. Both 
made by the the same company. They were both put out by the Minnesota Educational Computing Consortium or whatever MECC stands for. Made by two different people. Oregon Trail, of course, didn't start out as an MECC game. It was created by a student teacher who wanted to enliven the unit that he had to teach on Westward Expansion. He was rooming with a couple of student teachers that were math people that knew computers. And so he was putting this board game together to illustrate the journey to the American West. And then his roommates were like, you know, this would make a good computer game. You know, let's, let's put it on a computer instead. And so that's what they did all the way back in 1971. This is one of the oldest kind of enduring games. I mean, Adventure is a game that endured, but it came out in, you know, 75. Nothing else really, or very little else that's that old as 1971, endured for so long because it remained a staple on computer systems and schools and whatnot into the 90s in updated versions for the PC and everything else. It's still popular today. There's a game on Steam called The Organ Trail, which is a zombie-based version of it. That's right. It's just a concept that, that endured so well because it, it had a little education to it. It had a little challenge to it. And you could shoot pandemic levels of livestock and get ridiculously large levels of meat. Or just shoot all the livestock and leave the meat there. I mean, the point is there was a lot of gratuitous violence on, on poor defenseless buffalo. Buffalo is food. <laughs> Something like that. And lots of dysentery, of course. So much dysentery. You lost so many expeditions to dysentery. That's right. So, yeah, I mean, that was another early experience, obviously. Uh, but, you know, I was, I was not doing the PC gaming until, really, I met you because... Mm. No, no, that, that's not an exaggeration, because when you came along, we both moved to this area, both DOD employees slash contractor families. So when, when we both ended up here, where, where we still are now, though with some jumping around in between, at least on my part, you had a more advanced PC. I, I don't know if it was... 386. The, yeah, it was the 386 at this time. Yeah, mine had to have been a 286. I think I think it was. You had a 286. I actually built a 286 later on to learn about computers, but our primary family computer was a 386 in this giant metal box, which then got upgraded to a 486. <laughs> 66 megahertz 486. But on the 386, you had this really cool game called SimCity. Ah, yes. No one played that game. And I remember thinking that was really cool. And then later, in our Super Nintendo games, I bought the SimCity version for the Super Nintendo. And I spent a lot of Saturday mornings, like, just sitting there building residential units and commercial units and industrial units. And It's fun. Yeah, I had a great, great liking for, for SimCity. And that was you that introduced me to that one. And then I remember you came to school one day and you were like, we got this awesome new game where you, like, build this empire and, like, discover technology and, like, fight other empires. And, and it's called Civilization. Yeah, that, that was a game changer for me. No pun intended, I guess. <laughs> Pretty weak pun. I wouldn't do that on purpose because it's so lame. But there it is. But, I mean, that was one that really changed my view of what video gaming could be. I mean, I kind of got a taste of it with SimCity, obviously, before that. But games to me were the action games and the role-playing games, because I'd gotten into role-playing games, on the NES. I mean, the most expansive or big-picture kind of thing that 
that you really had was a Zelda or a Dragon Warrior, where you got to do some exploring and and that kind of thing. But this idea of this massive strategy game, where you're managing all this stuff and growing all of this stuff and discovering all this technology, it's like, whoa. A simulation, something that's not quick action or really time-based. I mean, you could think about your entire strategy the entire time you're playing Civilization and only commit once you thought, okay, I do want to move over here. I do want to go towards that. And it's interesting because it was originally going to be in real time. It was going to be very much like SimCity. Sid Meier was very, very impressed by SimCity, as so many people were. And so his original conception of the game was that you were going to do kind of SimCity on a global scale. So instead of building a residential district here and watching houses pop up on it, a commercial district here, watching a shopping mall come up on it, you would zone this area for farming and this area for this and this area for that. And then over time, the map would develop uh, as that was going on. And he found that that just wasn't rewarding. It, it was too abstract. It was too removed because you didn't have direct control over what was going on. And it was kind of too slow for anything to get going because you spend all your time waiting for stuff to develop. And that's when they hit on doing it turn-based instead. Obviously, it just it had that just one more turn kind of quality to it because you always have five or six different things going on, one of which is always just a turn or two away from fruition. So you're always like, on one more turn, that battleship's going to be built, and then I can go do this invasion, or in, in one more turn, I'm going to have this technology, and I'll finally be able to build that. And it's like, so I just, I just want to see that through. But you've always got you know about six things going on, so you've always got something that's just a turn or two away from happening. And God help you if you were fighting Gandhi. <laughs> yeah, Gandhi did like his nuclear weapons. You know, it's interesting. Sid Meier gave a talk recently at the GDC, Game Developers Conference, a, post, a classic game postmortem on civilization. He used that as an example of something where a person's experience shapes their perception of events. What he means by that is that it's so incongruous that a peaceful person like Gandhi would use nuclear weapons that all it took was someone seeing that once or twice, and it suddenly became ingrained in their head that Gandhi is the nuclear madman. He's actually wrong, because it was discovered a few years ago that there actually is a bug that does this, because the way it works is the AI has different levels of aggressiveness on a number-based system. Gandhi was the only one, I think the only one, that started a level lower on the scale than any of the other rulers, because Gandhi is historically a pacifist. Government changes could also affect the aggressiveness level of the AI. So if you chose democracy, if the computer opponent chose democracy as their government, it lowered their aggressiveness by two. Problem is that Gandhi started lower than everyone else. So Gandhi started at like a two or a one. I forget whether it flips at one or zero. Then if he took democracy, it would flip him down, you know, in either to zero or to negative numbers, probably to negative numbers because everything in computer science counts mm -hmm. from zero, not from one. It would flip him into negative numbers, and that would cause a glitch that would take his aggressiveness up to 10. So Gandhi actually was ridiculously aggressive under certain circumstances because of a bug in the software. Gotta work on those bound checkings. Pretty much. And obviously this is a period of time when game testing wasn't quite as sophisticated as it is today. By the early 90s, games companies normally did have some level of QA, 
But QA was still very primitive at that time, so you weren't necessarily going to find all these fiddly little bugs, especially in something as complicated as a civilization. And there's no internet, so what, Pat? Pretty much. So why were you getting all of these big, fancy, adult-like games? Was, were your parents at all interested in, in computer games, video games? My dad was, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think he really got them more for probably one of those concepts of if my son or kids get an interest in computers and how do we get them interested in computers if they have something they want to do on the computer. And to an extent, that is true. I mean, what he encouraged me to do is if I broke it, I fixed it. So I broke the computer a lot. (laughs) Oh, dear. Not intentionally. Sure. Uh, eventually when I did have my own computer in my own room, I had a problem where the system had to be reinstalled because of something or other every week until I figured out the hardware that's broken that's causing that. There's one time I was playing tribes and in the middle of a match, all of a sudden I get the click of death. (laughs) The click of death, for those who don't know, is when a hard drive does a click which is the head has decided it has lost its mind and is just hitting the top of the platter. You are not getting anything off of that hard drive ever again. Yeah. I, uh, I loved you, six gigabyte hard drive. I love it, use. For people that, that don't know what a hard drive actually is, a hard drive is a form of magnetic media where it's disc shape. It's a, it's a disc and... Uh, electrical impulses magnetize and demagnetize areas of that disk to create the ones and zeros that ons and offs that form the binary code. And so you have an electrical head that can read those pulses and determine where the ones or zeros are, and, and that's how it reads the disk. The way it keeps from scratching normally, there's actually a what's called the boundary layer. These disks, while they're spinning, naturally create this layer of air that keeps the head from actually hitting the disc. It's called an air bearing. Mm -hmm. If that starts to fall apart and the read head, read-write head, makes contact with those spinning discs, then it starts scratching those spinning discs, and then those spinning discs don't read so good no more. They don't have, (laughs) because they don't have that outer (laughs) magnetized layer anymore that can restore this information. Yeah. I needed a new hard drive then. We had to go on a special road trip. (laughs) And I got supercharged up to a 10 gigabyte hard drive. Wow. I remember our first hard drive. I can't remember. It might have, we might have had a computer that came with a little one, but our first hard drive I remember was a 540 megabyte hard drive. That was the first one we had, which felt so huge when I got it. I could put all my programs on it because. The programs weren't that big at the time, but of course, hard drive spaces, you get bigger hard drives, you get bigger programs to go on those hard drives. Oh, yeah. It's one of those things, in the 1980s, nobody had hard drives. Definitely not, no. You had floppy disks, and you just loaded it in. Because hard drives were way too expensive. They existed. IBM invented the first hard drive back in the late 50s, for their mainframes, obviously. Yeah, it took an airplane to haul them. Right, they were big things, and even as they got smaller uh, in the 1980s or whatnot, 
they were just still way too expensive to put in a commercial product. I mean, your hard drive might be more expensive than your com would be more expensive than your whole Commodore 64 setup. I mean, they were, they were hugely expensive. So you had to load discs, which of course led to a lot of disc switching on a lot of early programs, which was kind of annoying too. Yes. Yeah. There, there's so many <laughs> luxuries on computers today that, easy to think that they may have just always been there because computers have changed so little in the last 20 years. Now, I'm just talking about basic configurations of computers. Obviously, components are getting more advanced and operating systems are getting more advanced and all of that, but just... The layout, the, the layout. way the hardware works. If you want to get... If you're old and really nostalgic like me, there's this thing called Silver RAM. <laughs> Silver RAM does not go in nicely like modern ram it has these little annoying pins that you have to depress and it hurts my hand every jumper time i have to pin i'm not sure if they're jumper pins or not it's, it's part of the latches that hold the thing in oh, okay those things were always a pain to take in and out the way power supplies in 286s and below work there's a special it doesn't have a standard atx plug-up interface hmm. it is this two white power things that go on little headers. And if you flip them around, you fried a motherboard. <laughs> I may have fried a motherboard. When we had our Pentium, we would update it occasionally. We put more RAM in once. We put in a higher quality CD-ROM drive once. Put in a jazz drive. Remember jazz drive? Oh, yeah. <laughs> there was not a single hardware installation that went smoothly all according to plan. <laughs> My poor father would end up having to spend a couple of hours just getting a new piece of hardware to work, to get it in, uh, placed in the computer right and get the drivers installed right, because this is you know pre-Windows 95, which means nothing is plug-and-play. Now no. it's just you have, a, you have a slot. Today it's PCI or PCI Express, used to be AGP, a few other older things than that. And you plug into that slot, and then Windows 95 automatically detects it and finds and installs the right driver, unless it's a printer, because printers are evil they're the devil that's right but for the hardware you're putting in your computer your graphics cards your cd-rom drives etc sound cards sound cards it all just is literally plug and play and pre-windows 95 there was there was not anything plug and play about hardware you had what i like to call irq hell <laughs> we do not like irq hell irq stands for interrupt request on a computer, you have the processor. I'm doing things. You have devices. I'm a video card. <laughs> I'm the sound card. And the video card and the sound card need to play my game. Oh, right. We need to include Mr. Hard Drive in there, too. Yes. So we have Mr. Hard Drive, the sound card, and the video card all wanting to play with Mr. CPU. Mr. CPU is everyone's bestest friend. <laughs> However, Mr. CPU is so busy. He has to just go, all right, I'm too fast for any of you kids. Let me know when the stuff comes. Let me know when the stuff comes. <laughs> bring it. Bring it. Well, interrupt are what allow different things on the computer to say, hey, um, I'm ready for you to do things now. We're, we're doing stuff. Interrupt are really how you try and get all the multiple devices on a computer to work so that you can just sort of be like, okay, you're off doing something. You're off doing something. When you're done, raise an interrupt request and say, hey, we're going to continue on. 
but Jeff, that's no big deal. My operating system takes care of that for me and assigns all the IRQs to my various devices. That's on a modern operating system, kids. <laughs> In DOSLand, if you wanted to do fancy things like have a sound card or have a video card or anything. Mostly sound cards because back then video cards were a lot less common in the in the pre-windows 95 days you had to specifically make sure that the internet request for the sound card did not conflict with anything else on the system this is further complicated by video game manufacturers <laughs> back in the day video game manufacturers just said i want to play a sound card there's apparently no drivers for sound card <laughs> what sound cards are out there well creative Yamaha. Roland. Roland. Gravis. Gravis. In Sonic. Yeah, but <laughs> we're only going to pick like three of those people. Yes. So I'm going to say that. And oh, on my computer, this IRQ is not used for this IRQ is free. This IRQ is free. These are used by other stuff. So I'm not going to even bother to program them. But that's not necessarily how it is on my system. <laughs> so in IRQ hell, you go, Okay, what did the system assign the sound card? Five. Great. Does the program actually allow me to access five? No. Crap. <laughs> okay. Set it to... Can I change it to something? No. Great. Now I have to take the case off, move it to a different slot. Okay, what slot is that? Seven. Fantastic. Does the game allow seven? Yes. Great. What do you mean I have to set other little variables with this sound card. Okay, does this 200 by whatever work? No. What about <laughs> this one? No. That one? No. Okay, let's try a different interrupt request. Take it to a different slot. Okay. What's that one? That's 11. Fine. Let the program handle 11. Great. <laughs> let's go through those weird numbers again. Okay, that one doesn't work. That one worked. Oh, great, we have sound. Fantastic. I want a joystick. <laughs> what do you mean it wants only it programmed only to use interrupt request 11 i'm going to take a nap that's right i don't know how many games that i would buy and try to set up the sound and start the game and there's just no sound most of them you you for sound in particular it was a complete and utter nightmare yeah i know we sound like a couple of grumpy old men and meanwhile the people that started computing in the late 1970s or in the 1980s are like Back in my day, we got a blinking cursor, and we had to write a basic program even to get our games to run. And it's like, okay, fair enough. We did not live through that. I mean, we were alive, but we didn't have to bother with that so much. And yes, that was even harder. But we have our 1990s PC trauma, and, you know, that's just as valid, man. Just as valid. We're taking it and running. Yeah. So, yeah, I never really played computer games, like I said, in the 1980s. But once we finally got our Pentium, then really, really got into computer games. I probably, I was playing my Super Nintendo as well, particularly role-playing games. But I think the games I remember most fondly then are kind of the PC games. And, you know, SimCity and Civilization, those were a couple of first two. Actually, Civilization I actually bought for the old 286. I, I had that one on five and a quarter floppies. It, it worked. It was old enough, it would work. The first game after that, that, that really, after Civilization, that was really great, 
was this game called Dune 2. Oh, yes, that one. Real-time strategy game. The first real-time strategy game kind of by the full definition of what we think of as an RTS today. There were strategy games before Dune 2 that had real-time elements to them. But this is the first one that kind of brought it all together in one package where combat's in real time and you build bases and your bases build units and you go out and fight with those units and you harvest resources, in this case the spice melange, in order to build those units, etc. That game just looked so cool because it had pretty good graphics for the time and it had all this great real-time action and I wanted to play it so much. Only one person had it. And that one person's father decided that summer to completely lose his mind. <laughs> Tell the people about the cruelty we had to live with, Jeff. If it was nice out, we had to play outside. And he's listening, by the way. He'll be listening, by the way. So he'll hear this. He'll know <laughs> the pain he caused. <laughs> Sorry, Dad. <laughs> I exaggerate, of course, for comedic effect. But yeah, Dune 2 was a really fun game. It had a lot of interesting elements to it. It also had one of our favorite things we love in PC games, copy protection. <laughs> That's right. Apparently, there are traitors everywhere, and we're questioning everyone, including you. What kind of structure is this? The only way you know is if you have the manual. Did I have the manual? No. But thankfully, in addition to what type of structure was this, there would also be questions asking what the armor level of certain structures were, light, medium, heavy kind of thing. Those were very easy to figure out. And the good thing was the copy protection fired twice during the game, but it was always the exact same two spots. Mm-hmm. So you could save and quit, or you could save before the copy protection, and then if you failed the copy protection, you could reload and it would cycle to a different question. So you could wait till you got a question you knew the answer to. Yep. Stone Slab is foundation. I figured that one. Mm -hmm. But uh, that was the only one of the structure types we ever figured out. Normally we had to wait until it came up with like a wind trap and said, what armor level is this? And it's like, light. We know that. Yes. Victory. But it was a lot of fun. It was really interesting. It was very... Having the fact that you had real-time units moving around, shooting left and right. The only way I could ever beat that game fully, because especially when you get into the later missions, it's a complete nightmare because you literally lose by war of attrition. You have this big, long, drawn-out fight, and then there's no fight left in order to send enough units off after the bad guy. So the only way I could win is either the Atreides or the Harkonnen. The Ordos, right out. <laughs> I like the Ordos, but their ultimate structure does not have something that I can infinitely produce. It costs spice. The Harkonnen would, after so much time, launch effectively a nuclear missile. Worst comes to worst, I just keep launching nuclear missiles, which don't necessarily hit accurately until I have obliterated the enemy. At the Atreides, they get a bunch of Fremen who just a bunch of infantry that I can just... I want a bunch of you chappy to go and wave at the enemy. You may be slaughtered horribly, but enough of you will survive. And eventually I just wear the computer down with that. <laughs> and then I win. Mm -hmm. And then I kill the Emperor. That was a game that was very widely pirated. Jeff had a pirated version, and then he spread it to all the rest of us. So We're horrible people. We, we all had Dune 2, and none of us bought it. 
I bought Dune 2000 later on, which was the remake that they did in, you know, 2000. It was so, interesting. It was basically the same game, except gussied up and modernized. So I gave them some money eventually. We're horrible people. Uh, probably. Well, I bought all my NES and Super NES games. You except, had no choice. Except for Dragon Warrior. I did not buy Dragon Warrior. You got that because you had a subscription. To Nintendo Power, that's right. Because they gave they did the awesomest resubscribing bonus ever, which was giving the game Dragon Warrior to everyone who resubscribed. Probably because as we discussed in our JRPG episode, the game did absolutely horribly in the West. So and Nintendo was actually the publisher in the West, even though it was an Enix game. So they probably had a warehouse full of them that they never managed to sell, and they were like, oh crap, what do we do with these? And it's like, we'll give them away to our subscribers. And that's how you were introduced to the Dragon Warrior series, which you've enjoyed so much over the years and got you into E3 once. Not that I'm jealous. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, we played Dragon Warrior 1 over at Alex's house for many, many, many days, <laughs> weeks, months. Eventually, I figured out the horror that is the Dragon Lord's castle. Yeah. And finally got down to the base. And then I poked my head out to the backyard and went, Who wants to see the Dragon Lord? I believe Alex came charging at that point, because <laughs> both of us were trying to figure out how to get to the end of that thing. Yep. So both of us barely went against the Dragon Lord, figuring out with every single move, do we attack, do we heal, or what? <laughs> Yep, I mean, Dragon Warrior was, I mean, it was kind of the beginning of, of the JRPG, as we discussed in our JRPG episode, and I had first been exposed to it before I owned it. I had a friend uh, in Hawaii before I met Jeff that had it and got really enamored with it just because of this whole sense of exploring thing and kind of never knowing what what was on the next tile kind of thing. I mean, Obviously, there's really not that much to Dragon Warrior, but when you're an eight-year-old kid and you have this world that extends far beyond just a linear scrolling level, I mean, that that feels pretty epic and pretty awesome. And so I was very excited when I got it for free for re-upping my Nintendo Power subscription. But that's that's where my love, both of our love of, of RPGs came from, and that's still my my favorite genre, probably. The first Dragon Warrior game I owned was actually Dragon Warrior 4 which was really a lot of fun because it had this chapter system before you actually became, you at the very beginning, you put in your hero's name, and then it says, well, you're not the hero, you're playing this guy named Ragnar. And off you go. You're like, oh, great, I've completed chapter one. Can I be the hero now? No. You're going to be this princess and this, her friend, and they're off doing their thing. Great. Done. Can I be the hero now? No. You're going to be a merchant. Go for it, merchant. Okay, we got the merchant done. What next? Hero? No. You're going to beat some sisters. All right. Okay, they're off going towards this thing. Now I become the hero. But here's the thing. In that game, there's this huge buildup to the hero. Even though the game has each little concise little story of what they're going on, they hear about evil is growing, how monsters are looking for the hero, how monsters are getting stronger. You get a really good sense of how the layout of the entire world map is, really, because you play in different sections, but almost like the center of the world is a country called Endor. 
a lot of the companions that eventually join you pass through Endor, go near Endor, mention Endor, something like that. No Ewoks, though. No Ewoks. Wrong Endor. <laughs> and it's just really satisfying when you finally get to play the hero of, okay, I now have a better understanding of how the entire world is, what the lore is going on here. Maybe I can find and recover all those people who I played before. That's effectively what happens in Chapter 5 is you start off alone after your village gets attacked by monsters and your childhood friend sacrifices herself to save you from the monsters, which is kind of tragic, really, mm-hmm. especially for a little kid. It's like, hey, you're, you're playing there, you're back and forth, you're playing games with your friend, your teacher's going to teach you this really awesome spell after lunch, you take your lunch to your dad, and then all of a sudden... The village is under attack. And of course, you know uh, from earlier in the game that the monsters are looking for the hero because there are multiple references to the monsters abducting, kidnapping children in out-of-the-way places of the world, trying desperately to find the hero before he comes into his powers. Yep. It's really an interestingly put-together game, and it's really something that stuck with me. Though overall, in the entire Dragon Warrior franchise, my favorite is actually Dragon Quest V which has a little bit of the same sort of tragic feel to it, which I call the three generations of this family that's pretty much abused by evil. And they decide eventually to come have some words with said evil about mistreatment of the family. That's right. A game where your initial hero is not the hero. It's his child that is the hero. Yes. (laughs) Not even his child yet. You start off in the first part of the game, you're traveling with your father, the person you play. You're traveling with your father, you go around and he's looking for something, you're not really sure what, and then through a series of events, you get captured by monsters and they threaten to effectively kill you unless your father surrenders. Your father surrenders and is killed himself, and then you get put into slavery. So your father's dead by the hands of these monsters that have been trying to achieve something. You grow up in slavery, and then you get out of slavery. You go out into the world and start exploring a bit. You discover some of your old friends from when you were a kid and your father was traveling. You eventually get married, and you discover that your father wasn't just a traveler. He was a king of a country whose wife was kidnapped just after she gave birth. So you're like, well, crap. (laughs) I need to go avenge mom. Yeah. But as a result of what's going there, your wife actually has her own kids when you b- prove yourself as king. And the same thing happens to your kids and to your wife. So your wife gets kidnapped. You try to go rescue her while your kids are just freshly born, but you get turned into stone along with your wife. And you're just a statue on some rich guy's lawn for a long time. Until eventually, your old manservant, who was actually helping your dad way back in the day, Sancho, Sancho, comes up along with your kids who are about the age you were when you started the game. They discover you and turn you into from stone back to flesh again. And it's at that point we're like, all right, kids, we're going to go find mom. Then we're going to find my mom. And then we're going to make evil wish it never met with us. And we're going to fly around in a castle, because flying around in a castle is cool. Yeah, it's fun. 
<laughs> I know I make it sound like really big and epic, and actually it's a fairly short game. You could probably beat it in a weekend. I, I did practically beat it in a weekend when I first discovered it in, in college through emulation, because of course 5 was never originally released. It's had re-releases now on the DS and whatnot in the United States, but the Super Nintendo version was never released in the U.S. It's the game that's always I've always adored because it's just so concise. It has this really story that captivates me and well, you fantastic. Know, the, the interesting thing about the Dragon Quest games is they always kind of get tarred as very samey and very uninnovative because technologically they never changed much, even on the PlayStation, in their first PlayStation game, Dragon Quest Seven, still used some of the same sound effects that had been used since the 8-bit versions and still used the same kind of tile-based overworld kind of setup that the 8- and 16-bit versions of the game used. So it, even though it was kind of pseudo-3D in the towns and dungeons, and it was always kind of, you're always the hero, even if there's some variation like it's your kid or you start playing these other characters first. And there's always a demon lord, and it's, Town, dungeon, town, dungeon, town, dungeon, town, dungeon, demon lord, win. It kind of got tarred with this idea that it's a very uninnovative game, but I think narratively, it often took more interesting leaps. I think each game kind of did a little more than the one before it to kind of explore narrative aspects. And it makes sense because Yuji Horii, who created the series, he was a writer. He was not a computer guy. He never, he just was the planner of the games. It was, there were different people that did the programming on those games. So I think it kind of befits his writer sensibility that it's really the narrative where those games took more risks than, say, a Final Fantasy, which certainly took some narrative risks too, but Final Fantasy was more well-known for reinventing its gameplay systems and whatnot in each game. Yeah, definitely. If you take a look at Final Fantasy in the States here, at least, you had Final Fantasy 1, 8-bit, first thing, run around, do things. There's not much in the way of story. Some of the story is completely random, and it's like, oh, and by the way, now that you've explored these four orbs, you have to go back in time, because really it was this thing that, that did everything. And it's like, what? <laughs> yeah, it's not really well explained. That, that has nothing to do with what just happened. Yeah, it's a little weird. I think some of the remakes of the original game helped with the story and explain what's actually going on, so some of it could have been lost in translation. Well, but, you know, Final Fantasy's kind of always done this. Final Fantasy has a tradition, almost, of the last-minute boss introduction, where it's like, all along, this has been the big bad, and then, psych! Now there's this bigger bad! I mean, Final Fantasy IV did it. I mean, Zero Mist comes out of nowhere, essentially. By the yeah, way, the, the, real, the real boss is the manifestation of all hatred living in the center of the moon! Like, uh, okay... Not... Golbez, who you've been fighting the entire time and had this really nice back and forth with. Yeah. Golbez used to be a good knight until... About that. <laughs> so, I mean... Th then you get six. Yeah, now six... I mean, six is narratively, certainly, you know, just about the most interesting and awesome one. And, of course, the thing with that one is they really had a goal with that one of we don't want a protagonist. We want to make a game where every playable character could be considered the protagonist. And so that's what they did. I mean, you could kind of, in the first part of the game, say that Tara's the protagonist, but then not really, because she spends various times away from the party. And in the light world, when she discovers her half-esper self, she flies off and you have to find her. And then in a lot of the world of Ruin, she's not the main character. 
So, I mean, Tara's not really the main character. Celis gets a big moment in the sun. All of the characters have some kind of interesting backstory, except for the two hidden characters, Umaro and Gogo, because they're little bonus Easter egg characters, essentially. And Mog doesn't really have any story, but, you know, that's because he's a mogul. What do they have to be angsty about, anyway? They're furry. That's true, they are. That's the interesting thing about Six, is that you have this group of characters where any one of them could be the star of the game, essentially. And that was very deliberate. That was a conscious design decision. Then there was Seven. Yeah, you don't like Seven. No, I'm fine with Seven. It's Eight I hate. Well, everybody hates Eight. It's not good. I think with Seven, my biggest problem is, is that I don't think it's worth the same acclaim that a lot of nerds tend to attribute to it. I don't think the Seven story is as good as Six's story. But that's my personal opinion. Yeah, I mean... I think the overarching story of Seven is, is very interesting and has some good subtleties to it, but certainly the story of Six is more expansive in that it has a lot of compelling stuff going on with so many members of the main cast, whereas I don't think some of the side stories of the other characters in Seven are necessarily as compelling as the side stories of the characters in Six. Yeah, Seven definitely has that whole protagonist. You got Plow. He's pretty much there all the time. Yeah, except for the one period where he goes crazy, but, you know. Yeah, it's brief. It happens. Plus, you know, it has the it has the traumatic death scene. Spoiler alert. Sephiroth kills Eris. Though it's actually kind of Genova that does it. It's complicated. Then there's a little <laughs> plot twist like that, and I just go, what? Yeah, the, the, plot, the plot's a bit convoluted and has a couple of... Not plot holes necessarily, but areas where the plot isn't fully explained very well. And as someone who really likes the story, I'm playing more RPGs for the story, and that's why I like Dragon Quest over Final Fantasy, is because it may be simplistic in the fact that, yes, it's you going off against the Demon Lord overall. It's not so much as the start and the destination, but the journey itself, Hmm. and the story of the journey itself to that spot. I know I'm going to take out the Demon Lord, Fine, I've done that 16 bazillion times. It's the story to the Demon Lord that I find most compelling, the characters that are brought in. When you had the story in Dragon Quest VIII, the entire thing dealing with Angelo and his upbringing at an abbey where he's abused because he's an orphan. Mm -hmm. The story behind that, bringing him in, why does he fight? Why does he have this big rivalry with his brother, effectively? It's just compelling more in a way and i can follow and understand the plot it's character development as opposed to more esoteric weird god creatures changing things which is what more final fantasy 7 and a lot of the later final fantasy stories have been at least in my mind and experience sure absolutely you know in terms of pc games i mean that's what i was really playing on consoles and that's what you were really playing on consoles too in terms of pc games other than those strategy games we talked about. For me, it was all about the point-and-click adventure games and the space simulator games. Wing Commander, X-Wing, TIE Fighter. That's where I got the most of my enjoyment. And really, LucasArts in general, I guess, because LucasArts had the best point-and-click adventure games and they had the best space sims in the Mm -hmm. TIE Fighter especially. Played so much TIE Fighter. TIE Fighter was awesome. Yeah. So, so awesome. It would never felt so good to be evil. 
That's right. And it had it had a nice plot. I mean, it had a plot that allowed you to largely kind of be a good guy, even within this bad organization. They kind of made a a decision, I think, probably deliberately to have a lot of what you were doing be focused on Imperial infighting. I mean, you did fight the rebellion some, but most of your missions were either bringing peace to civil wars or taking out pirate gangs or being involved in dealing with rogue Imperial factions. You kind of got to be the good guy, even though you were playing the bad guys. And you even had Thrawn. You did. Now, I would have been just as happy blowing up rebel scum. I mean, got to bring order to that galaxy. And nothing says it better than the Emperor's iron fist. That's right. But it was interesting that they kind of allowed you to play the, the hero, even though it was kind of villainous. And it was just so Star Wars, which was great. I mean... There'd been Star Wars games before. There'd been a Star Wars game on the NES, and there were the Super Star Wars trilogy on the uh, Super Nintendo that was for masochists only. Yeah. So we knew someone who beat Super Empire Strikes Back. He had no soul. Probably not. Probably true. So, I mean, those games weren't really that fun a way of being immersed in the the Star Wars galaxy, but then a game like X-Wing comes along. Suddenly, you can feel like you're in the Star Wars universe in all of these X-Wing dogfights and whatnot, and that was, that was pretty cool. But, I mean, X-Wing is a very limited game compared to TIE Fighter because TIE Fighter got more complex mission structures going. They had more action-packed battles and more ships on the screen at once and all of that kind of thing. X-Wing was very limited compared to TIE Fighter. So it wasn't just that it was awesome flying for the Empire. It's just that that game was so much more sophisticated than X-Wing that it was a lot more fun to play. A lot of fun. Specifically got a joystick to play that game. Yeah, I mean, it's that's a, another thing that's hard to remember today, and I've, I've kind of touched on this in previous episodes, but in the 1980s in the United States, when a lot of your computer gaming crowd was an older, more affluent, more sophisticated crowd, contrast with the British market where you had still a lot of teenagers playing arcade-type games. Not that they weren't sophisticated people, but they were younger people. Military simulations were one of the huge genres. Military simulations could sell hundreds of thousands of copies, which on a computer platform at that time was was a big deal. A flight stick-style joystick was a very common and very standard peripheral that you would have as part of a PC gaming rig. Everyone had their flight stick of some kind because there was at least one flight simulator or space simulator or something of another that you were interested in, so you'd want to have a stick for. So I had a joystick, I had a flight stick, and then I had a flight stick pro. That's actually the the name of the stick, flight stick and flight stick pro, with you know the multiple buttons and the little hat so you could flip your views with your thumb and and all of that good stuff. And it plugged right into your sound card. That's right, it did, which, you know one of just those weird ways that things worked out because your sound card kind of became your hub for all kind of extra game-related stuff. It had a bunch of inputs in it for different things. This is before USB became ubiquitous or even existed. Oh, yeah. I mean, everything was different. I mean, you know, you'd have your printer would be plugged into your big old parallel port and your mouse would be plugged into your serial port. Then you'd have your 15-pin joystick port. keyboard. Yeah, and, you know, just all of these strange little fiddly bits. USB was another one of those things that was a very good idea. We love you, USB. You made everything so much easier. Yeah. 
So yes, your joystick would plug into the game port on your sound card primarily. Just about everyone had one. I mean, all my friends had joysticks. It was one of these things. It's kind of a chicken and egg type thing. Flight simulators in the 1990s really kind of crashed and burned as a genre, pun intended, I guess. Part of that is because the market changed, because PC gaming became more mainstream. So flight simulation was kind of a niche genre. We, we discussed this in one of our episodes. I can't remember which, but flight simulation was such a niche genre when the only people playing the games were the niche people, then it was a huge genre. But as the PC gaming market grew in the 90s, the overall number of people grew, but the number of people playing flight sims didn't. Nope. And so the genre, but the genre had to be very technically impressive. Yeah. I mean, look at Free Space, which came after Mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. Everyone wanted not just Newtonian physics, but real full-blown physics for the gun, for the weaponry, for flight control. Exactly. And very high definition and graphics and whatnot as well, top-of-the-line graphics. So these games became very expensive to develop, and then they couldn't recoup their development costs because they went to a niche audience. This is especially true of the flight simulators a little more than it is the space sims. Once people stopped making flight simulators, it became less of an impetus to have flight sticks. And once there was less of an impetus to have flight sticks, it became hard to even make mainstream space sims that were a little more universally popular, popular, like a Wing Commander or a TIE Fighter, because controlling those with mouse and keyboard was junk, but nobody had flight sticks anymore because there weren't enough games being released that required them that justified having a flight stick. So that whole genre just kind of collapsed in on itself, which was very sad to me because I always loved my space sims. I didn't really play the realistic flight sims all that much. I played a couple of them a little bit, but it was really the space sims, the wing commanders and the TIE fighters, and then, you know, at the very end, free space. Yeah. That was that. And then, of course, we were, you know, we were into the mainstream, too. We all played Doom. Maybe. Little bit. A lot. A lot. That's the one game where I even got to the point where I explored modding. I never did much modding and never very complex modding, but I fooled around with some of the level editors. I never made anything. I mean, I just literally just fooled around with them. You know, I would import some graphical mods or there was the the sound mod that had uh, NBA Jam announcer sounds whenever you killed an enemy. So, you know, you'd shoot some with a shotgun and be another nail in the coffin. Or, you know, you'd blow him up with the rocket launcher. He's on fire, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, did some frame rate adjustment things where you could make your gun shoot a million times a second because you got rid of all the animation frames. (laughs) You know, that was kind of my introduction to modding, which is something I've never done much of myself, but I'm always on the lookout for interesting mods for PC games. And Doom was really a big part of, it wasn't the very first game that sprung a modding community, but that was really kind of the start of modding as something that a lot of people did. It's also one of the first games, I think, at least for me, I'm not sure for you, that either of us actually played as a network together. That's true. You and I did play Doom together, trying to beat the game. Came up with some sort of weird way that eludes me now in order to write a manual modem call thing. Because we actually, you know, we actually, uh, it was peer-to-peer uh, over the phone line, over a modem. One of us would dial into the other uh, in order to do this. Of course, the other fun thing is, you know, all the LAN parties that we had in the late 90s. Oh, yes, those things. 
my dad, he did encourage me with the whole computer thing, and he was good with it himself. He actually would take some computers from his work over the weekend and bring them on home along with some basic networking stuff. And this is before Twisted Pair, that plastic thing that plugs into your computer. Yeah, there's a time before that. <laughs> there's actually a time before what I'm going to talk about, but what I had at the time. It's called thin-based Ethernet, or uh, thin coaxial Ethernet. It's very slow. It's very interesting. If there's any kink anywhere of the wire, everyone loses network connection. <laughs> yeah. Everyone becomes sad when that happens. So every computer needs to have a network card. They need to have that coaxial hook on it. And it needs to have these terminators on the end that pretty much have an infinite resistance on it. So it looks like the signal goes off into the nether. Because if you don't put that on, then somehow it reflects back and there's nightmarish hard. We actually had that little network for quite a long time. It originally spanned the entire house. Then it only went from the downstairs to my bedroom up above so that my computer could connect in and we already had to coax there so we didn't have to bother running a Ethernet line, an actual twisted pair Ethernet line. But yeah, setting that up allowed us to do such fun games as Warcraft 2 and StarCraft. That's right. Eight computers all in one house. Fun times, man. And, Fun times. And I remember, you know, like you said, about how networking was more complicated. I mean, I remember that it would take a couple of hours for Jeff's dad to get these all set up, and they'd come online one at a time. Like, maybe when he first set it up, let's say three or four of them would all recognize each other immediately. Mm -hmm. But then he'd have to go through one by one to get all of those other computers to finally realize that, hey, you're on a network. Yep. Because these were not computers that we, we would bring them in just for these. They didn't have eight computers just lying around their house. No. We, no. We, would, we would bring these in special for these LAN parties and then, you know, hook them all up and have these four-on-four four or four-on-three StarCraft games and, and WarCraft games. That was fun until it got to the point that our friend Chris could build Protoss carriers and with full complements of fighters in like 10 minutes. And then no one else could win anymore. I'm sure a champion player could have beaten him, but we weren't champion players. So once he got to the point where he could have like eight fully stocked Protoss carriers in like 10 or 15 minutes, it's like that was the end of StarCraft, really. Yeah, but it was fun. It was fun. It was a, it was a lot of fun. And I learned all these networking things and how computers work as a result of this crazy nightmare. That's right. And then you became a network administrator and lived happily ever after. Well, system administrator, yes. not just networking. You became a system administrator and lived happily ever after, right? Yep. Yeah, we'll go with that. Needed lies, we'll tell ourselves. <laughs> Obviously, we, we kept playing games. Uh, I mean, we still play games today. I never get enough time to play games anymore as much as I want to, but... I more watch Let's Plays as I drift off to sleep than play video games. But we're still gamers today, obviously. We're not just interested in the history. We're also interested in in the games themselves and the games that continue to come out. So, but that's kind of where it started for us. And hopefully it sounds a little bit familiar to how some of this stuff started for some of you as well, except for all you Europeans out there that had your, your ZX Spectrums and your, your Amigas, which, which we never got to experience all of those crazy arcade adventures. And uh, honestly, you guys had a better 
front of it with the PC gaming. Yeah, really in in the 80s, uh, very much so. Obviously in the 90s, it all kind of merged together. So we got some of the cool games that came out of Britain in the in the 90s, like XCOM and Populous and whatnot over here. But yeah, in terms of 80s gaming, there was there was a very interesting variety in on computers that that we never got to experience. So now you may wonder why I mentioned the Atari, but I never brought up in the history there that it was one of the first systems that I played. That's true. That did happen. The Atari, which sits above the television I occasionally mention on here, was actually gifted to me by my grandparents about a few years ago. I've never actually owned an Atari before, but they know, hey, that's Jeff. He likes video games. We are trying to clear out this stuff from our attic. Do you want it? Okay. I plugged it up. It didn't work. (laughs) Then I took it apart and looked at its motherboard, and it said, I hate you because all of this stuff is corroded and has broken solder connections. So I painstakingly went about fixing it. It works now. It does. We have not played our Atari today, but we could. We could play our Atari today. That's right. That pretty much wraps up our histories, and maybe we'll revisit the nightmares of our lives later. (laughs) So what is the three-part plus whatever crazy thing that we have planned for the nice listeners who decided to put up with us for the last (laughs) hour and a half? We've kind of got this thing going, uh, semi on purpose, that we might do kind of one big in-depth blowout extravaganza a year. Could be we run out of big blowout extravaganza topics we want to talk about and then never do one again, but we're at least going to do it two years running, is we're going to take a really in-depth look at the early history of Syzygy Atari from its founding and some of the history of the founders before that up through the sale to Jack Trammell in 1984. Some of you that have been with us for a while may be thinking, haven't you kind of already done that? Yeah. Uh, The answer is yes and no. We've talked about pieces of it. We did a Nutting Associates episode, which of course brought computer space into things some. We did a History of the Atari brand episode where we did just kind of a loose look at all the various manifestations of Atari throughout time. Certainly, you can't do a big three-part crash episode without spending a good deal of time with what's going on at Atari. So we have talked about bits and pieces of this, and I've put out some theories on this or that, why this or that happened. But in the meantime, I've been able to do a lot more interviews with individuals that were there. I've talked to Ray Kassar now, who Mm -hmm. was the CEO of the company in its heyday. I've talked to Dennis Groth, who was the CFO of the company during the same period. Alan Hendricks, who was in charge of the finances of the console division. Carol Cantor, who was doing some market research work in CoinOp. I've talked to all of these people just in the last couple of months, in addition to people I've talked to previously, including Consumer Division President Michael Moon, Consumer Division VP of Sales and Marketing Bill Grubb, CoinOp President Gene Lipkin, CoinOp Sales VP Frank Ballou. So... I've talked to a lot of people. I've gathered a lot of information from depositions and other sources. We've gone into some of this stuff in some depth, but we've never just taken an in-depth look at kind of Atari from birth to death. Because 1984, the sale really was death in a way. And so we're going to really dig into that. We're going to discuss the company, the people, the culture, 
and what it did right and what it did wrong to kind of grow this industry and then collapse this industry. Some of this we talked about in the crash episode, but I have some new information since then, just from interviews and whatnot I've done and resources I've gathered. So kind of revisit a little bit about that. So we're going to do three episodes on this. Don't know exactly where the breaks are going to be. Uh, like we did with our three-parter last year, we're going to record them all at once in one marathon sitting and then split them oh, up. Oh, God. Not again. <laughs> and then split them up at logical places when we're done. But we're just going to get really in-depth on Syzygy, Nutting, Computer Space, Birth of Atari, Growth of Atari, Warner Communications, Crash, etc. So A nice, big, comprehensive packet. That's right. It's our gift to you for hearing us rant for an hour and a half. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so next time, the mysteries of Syzygy, Atari, the whole kitten caboodle. Next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode used under a creative commons attribution license outro music is bacterial love by Rolla music found at freemusicarchive.org used under a creative commons attribution license <laughs>